Hey there, and welcome to the Punched and Played podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean Rose. I'm joined by Jonathan Baker. Hey, hey. And Clint Broadbent. Howdy. How are you fine gentlemen doing the night? Smooth sailing. Yeah, can't uh, can't argue. It's a beautiful <laughs> summer day. And we're stuck in here recording. Yes, I know, I know. Yeah. But later in the podcast, we're going to be joined by a special guest, David Sanhuesa of Gameogami Games. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about some of our favorite digitally implemented board games. And the impetus for this is actually... I have been playing a lot of the Witcher video game. Oh. And in the Witcher, there is a card game called Gwent. Okay? And I have kind of become obsessed with this game. It is not the most in-depth game in the world. It's it's pretty simplistic. But it actually borrows some things from another game. I've not played it. But um, it borrows things from the game Condottieri. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that the playboard has three different areas that you could play certain cards. There's like the up-close combat area where you play cards that have sword symbols. They're kind of your fl- front line. Then the middle area, you've got your archers. And then you've got your heavy artillery, like your catapults, in the very back. Mm-hmm. So you've got these different powered cards. And the whole point is you're trying to outrank your opponent. You're both alternating between cards. You have you draw 10 cards. You have, have to have 22 units in your deck. And you can have up to 10 special cards and things like that. So you want to keep your deck fairly small because you only get to draw 10 cards from your deck. And that's it. You play. It's The game is best out of three games Mm. but you only ever get 10 cards unless you are able to play cards that let you draw some extra cards and things like that how many multiple copies of cards are you allowed i think it might have an artificial cap i think on some of them i have up to three copies Mm. i haven't gotten far enough in to see if i can get beyond that but i think right now it's putting you around three but it could be more cool but the thing is is that on top of that you've also got these different things like weather cards so if you play the winter card, for example, every single card that's on the front line, your close combat with the swords, every card now only has a value of one. Mm-hmm. And that affects both sides. Interesting. Wow. So pretty much it's this kind of this back and forth of trying to make sure that you have superiority and you can then pass and then the other player can keep playing cards. The thing is you've got to make sure you hold back cards in your hand to win the second or possibly the third round because, you again, it's best out of three. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. Uh, the special powers, there's things like where you can actually put a decoy. Like I think in Condottieri, there's a scarecrow where you can actually put that down and take back one of your units, and you can use that. So like there's one card in particular. You can play it on your board, and it lets you automatically play a card from your discard pile, put it on the board and for free. Wow. So then I, you can use the decoy, take that card back in your hand, play it another round, and pull another card out of your discard pile. Sweet. So there's a lot of interesting little combos and all of that. In the special edition for the Xbox One, they actually included two decks of Gwent. There's four different factions in the game, and they included two decks, and I'm really sad that I can't get one. They're selling for like $100 on Amazon. It's ridiculous. Oh, wow. Well, people are charging that much. So yeah. I'm hoping that CD Projekt Red will see that they have a nice cash cow here and might actually try to put this game out. But that was kind of the impetus for this. Um, have you either of you played Condottieri? I have not. Mm-mm. I haven't either. Okay. It's a little bit different. It has a similar mechanism. It has the tarot card 
uh, shape. And it, uh, again, it has like a winter card and stuff like that. So there's definitely borrowing some aspects from that game, it feels like. Mm-hmm. But it takes it to another level because of the three different playing fields and things like that. That sounds really cool. It is pretty neat. I, I do hope they, they produce it. But that's kind of been the thing that got me on this whole topic of talking about our favorite digitally implemented board games. So what are some of your favorite uh, digital board games? Yeah, for me, I'll go first. Uh, I kind of thought for myself, when I came up with the, my my favorite games, we were kind of bantering it back and forth. A couple games that really, uh, that really stuck with me were Agricola, La Havre, and uh, Through the Ages online. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it. And I'm like, well, why? Do, why were those like the first? Like, why were those like the three that I was like, oh, I have to talk about these. And I think that it kind of just, if lumping them together, I think one thing that I like about online board gaming in in a lot of situations is that sometimes there are a lot of pieces moving, and online implementations of games can help manage the fiddliness or the the moving stuff around to make it so that a game of Agricola doesn't take, you know, takes maybe 20 minutes, a half an hour, you know, against AI because you're cooking, you're going quick, you're moving, you're moving fast, while, whereas it takes 90 minutes or two hours playing the game, like in the board game version. Mm-hmm. So I find I get to play it a lot more than I typically would if I just had to wait for friends to get together to play. Yeah. It automates a lot of the processes sometimes. So, again, taking out some of that fiddliness. But, again, I don't know. I don't think I would ever want to go to a point where I was playing nothing but digital board games. You know what I mean? You totally miss. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that would be tough. But, again, you don't have anybody around. You you want to play against an AI or if you want to play online for a quick game. I think that's great. So I'm actually really excited that they're doing these digital implementations to help supplement the physical games as well. But definitely not a replacement in my book. Of course. I think sometimes for me it's the best thing is having, like, heavier games. Um, I've played uh, Through the Ages as one of my favorite games. It is a beautiful game. It is fantastic. It's one of the most solid games. I could never – I don't own the game because I know I could never get that game played. It would be so hard. But I've played probably 50 to 60 times online over the last, you know, seven years or whatever – I just love that implementation, and that that's on uh, boardgaming-online.com. So boardgaming-online.com, free service. It is fantastic. It's a little it's a little rough, and they're actually doing an iOS implementation next year. Oh. Um, or actually, I actually heard it might come out on S at Essen. And so, I mean, really, if that comes out. I'm locking myself in my in my room. It's it's really fun. It, Podcast it, will be canceled. Yeah, exactly. Hiatus, but it's really good. So I guess one of the things I like the online thing is is that it manages that compl- the the fiddliness, the the moving parts. I've never really used any of these online services, kind of like what the website you're talking about. I know you've messed with Vassal a little bit. Yeah, I've messed with Vassal. I've messed. I've played some games on. Uh, there's a French sounding one. I cannot even try to pronounce it. Boit. I don't know. Don't even try. B o i t e j e a u x. A lot of a lot of letters in there, but we'd um, like to apologize to the whole country of France. I, I do Thank apologize. You. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I do not do French, but um, yeah, I played some games on there. Poured some game. Played some games on um, Board Game Arena. A couple different services, and uh, you know, I played Libertalia for the first time on online, actually. Oh. 
as far as iOS implementations, I I tend to not surprisingly to our longtime listeners tend to stay to the card games, and uh, I do a lot of solitary playing. I uh, play against the AI. I'm just not. I don't know. I just haven't had the the urge to play against people very often, but. I like to play Ascension, the base set. I've played that so many times. I'm just so sick of it. But <laughs> but you're still going back. But yeah, i got to be honest. I probably played it last night at least once. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I have also played a, a decent amount of San Juan. I had been playing it on an Android with, with somebody's... Um, cheap knockoff. Yeah, cheap knockoff. <laughs> and then I got, got my iPhone, and then I, I got the actual version, and it's nice, and it's good. And I enjoy playing it can hammer out a game pretty quickly also played some star realms that one's pretty quick and easy to play um those are some of my favorites i've i've dipped my toes into others i've got lords of water deep and some other ones but yeah most of my digital games have been played through ios that's been my kind of the go-to medium for the most part i mean i had downloaded Catan for playstation and stuff like that but i really didn't play it that much actually a fun fact i actually played the pc version of Catan before i played the actual board game I discovered that, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is an awesome board game. This is a real thing? I went and tracked down a game store. I was in Lubbock, Texas at the time, and walked to the store, and I was just kind of (laughs) taken aback of, what is in this store? You know, I just was not prepared. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was going in there looking for something special, and it's like, oh yeah, Catan's over there. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that was actually my first introduction to the hobby honestly was playing the uh, Catan PC version but in terms of iOS the game that kind of wowed me the most initially was the Carcassonne app my wife loves that game and it's really well done it's it's kind of almost become kind of the gold standard for what an iOS app that it's, it's a gorgeous app um, they try to put out new updates you have to pay for some of the expansions and whatnot, but they have like little challenges you can do. You can do like a solo game. The AI is pretty competent. There's different levels of AI, so I like that. I definitely like having the ability to play the game on my own, play against an AI instead of having to find another person to do the pass and play. It's really never been a big thing for me. Yeah. But yeah, Carcassonne is a really good one for me. Awesome. The, the one that I've picked up the most recently would be Galaxy Trucker. And that actually won one of the uh, Board Game Geek Awards. The Fan Choice, I think, was the top choice for that. And it's really well done. It initially came out on the on the iPad, but they were actually pulled it off on the smaller screen with the iPhone. It's a really great game. They even included a little campaign, but they got the time frantic, getting the tiles, flipping them over, building your ship. Wow. It handles it really, really well, and then you go through there, and it's 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 a nice implementation of that game. I I know that Jonathan's not a big fan of Galaxy Trucker. I would probably try it on the phone. Okay, all right. I love Galaxy Trucker, but again, it's it's like the mainstay night game. Mm-hmm. If you're going to get it out, I mean, it's a big game. I think the iOS would be right at home. Yeah, it's it's a really great game. I enjoy that a lot. But the the I think the company that's wowed me the most in terms of the implementation of board games is Playdeck because they're the ones that did the Agricola game they did lords of water deep they did summoner wars among some other ones like the penny arcade card game and things like that their quality is top notch i've been really impressed with a lot of their their games and it was interesting on the on a more recent episode of the plat hat podcast colby was actually talking about how 
he doesn't really view his company as going into that that arena. They licensed out Summoner Wars, but they realized, you know what, that's not us. So they're really wanting to focus on that type of experience they're wanting people to have with their physical board games. Mm-hmm. And they're not they're choosing not to go into the actual implementation of their games in digital formats. Although they are helping to come up with some supplementary things that can help their physical games along as well. Kind of with the Spectre Ops app that they're working on and stuff like that. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Do you think that that, that game companies need to be keeping this mentality of keeping their minds open about having digitally implemented games? I think it, in terms of revenue streams, I mean, you talk about why the, the hard part is already done. That the game is designed, it's a good game, mm-hmm. it's a critically accepted game. I think if, the, if you have something like that, uh, why why not? Why not reach an, uh, a new group of of people mm-hmm. that maybe wouldn't you know go to a board game store, but while they're sitting on a lazy Saturday, they're like, oh yeah, well I've heard X and X game, I've heard of that game, well I'll give it a try, and they may find out and like it. Yeah. So. Well, I know it's a big expense. Game development's not cheap. So. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's all about finding that balancing act of am I going to make my money back doing this? Yeah. Digital version. And I think, you know, of course, part of the problem is you are, um, you know, looking at a market who's not used to paying very much for for games. I'm a little very bit on true. the cheap side for games. And, and some of the – and you're not going to get as much sales out of it. So sometimes you can maybe you do have to price it a little bit higher. And so there's that fine line. Yeah. But, I mean, Elder Sign is another one that's – very well done from Fantasy Flight. I mean, it's not a direct implementation of the actual dice game, but it does a very close job to it. And really it actually nice. does some things that are that the actual board game doesn't do, which I think is, are just kind of phenomenal. Yeah. Unfortunately, the, the kind of the extra, they're not quite campaigns, but they're kind of a little bit more of these adventures where you're trying to go out to sea and you're trying to find Cthulhu. And it, it's really neat. And there's the Thequa one where you're having to f- rescue one of these... Uh, a research assistant that got kidnapped. Mm-hmm. And, and it's really interesting. It adds a whole new layer where you're having to go and collect new things, takes you out of the museum. Something that the actual game hasn't done, except for the more recent expansion with the Arkham Horror, puts you on the streets of Arkham Horror. But it's really neat. I The downloadable content added something that the game itself, the physical game itself, couldn't pull off as well, I think. so. It's awesome. Are there any other any other thoughts on digital board games? I haven't been able to participate very often, but um, there's a Octagon, O-C-T-G-N, which is a service that lets you play a lot of the living card games. And uh, I know for sure you can play the Star Wars game. You can play Netrunner. You can play uh, Lord of the Rings living card game. And so there's another way to uh, interact and play some digital games and, and you can try out some different different ones and of course you know the recommendation is that you actually own the product before you download the images and whatnot but it's another another way that you can try if you can't get a game going on at home or in your game group you can maybe reach out and play with someone else yeah so again just to kind of recap some of the games that we feel like are kind of standouts and again this is by no means all inclusive but Agricola Lords of Waterdeep Raw Lahav through the ages. Now through the ages is not on iOS, but not until later this year. Yeah, not yet. But Ascension, I've played a lot of that. Star Realms, San Juan, Galaxy Trucker, Carcassonne, and Elder Sign. All really solid games, and definitely worth exploring if you are looking for some type of digitally implemented game. 
But I've also got, got a lot of good mileage out of... I've also gotten a lot of good mileage out of the Scotland Yard game. Because, hmm. again, it's I like those sort of games. And, I mean, the AI is not that smart half the time, but it makes you feel like you're, oh, I'm so amazing, I just completely tricked this uh, dumb computer. But it's I've gotten a lot of good mileage, so... Kind of, it's kind of the flavor of the week. Sometimes you kind of jump around, but I like having that variety. So, but again, never think that the digital will impl- uh, replace it. But again, even talking about like that, the game of Gwent and The Witcher Three, part of me really wishes they put it out in a physical format as well. But we're gonna keep our discussion of this kind of brief because we want to introduce our guests for tonight. <laughs> So tonight we are joined by a special guest, David Sanhuesa, the founder of Gameogami. So how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about yourselves? I'm doing just fine. Again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I just wanted to get a little bit of a background of your experience with working with Gameogami. Yeah, well, Gameogami is the game development company that I founded a couple of years ago after leaving my day job as a video game artist and animator. Uh, in addition to being the founder at Gameogami, I'm also the creative director, which basically means I have been uh, the, done the game design and art direction for all of the games that Gameogami has developed so far, which includes Goblin's Jewel Fairy's Rule, which was released in 2013 after a successful Kickstarter campaign, and Immortal, which is the project we have on Kickstarter right now, uh, as well as other games that haven't been announced yet. Well, fantastic. Again, we're really excited to have you on here tonight. So, again, thanks again for being on here. Yeah, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I know you guys are a fairly new podcast, but I really like what you're doing. Uh, I think I first found out about you guys uh, when you did the interview with Emerson Matsuchi of Nazca Games. And, uh, you know, after after that point, I think I was really hooked on your format. So I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, we're on episode number 10 now. So Nice. All right. So... <laughs> I know that with the the first game you did on Kickstarter, it was the Goblins Drool Fairies Rule. So yes. that's very different from the game that you have on Kickstarter right now. So what was the origin of yeah. the Goblins Drool Fairies Rule? <laughs> very different. So uh, so just I guess going a little further back in origin, um, I've been a gamer my whole life and kind of a game designer my whole life. Like, as far as I can remember, you know, playing games, I also remember thinking, like, oh, I'd I'd like to make my own version of this. You know, even as, like, a six-year-old, like, I would play, like, Legend of Zelda or something, and then I'd scribble notes on a piece of paper of my, you know, ideas for a game, right? That which basically would be, like, a Legend of Zelda clone, but to my six-year-old brain, this was really cool (laughs) and really (laughs) unique, right? So, So I have, as a hobby, been designing games, you know, all my life, at least you know, if only in my head, uh, in addition to actually working in games as, as a video game artist. Uh, you know, over time, you know, playing a lot of, like, board games, video games, playing collectible card games like, you know, Magic, uh, I, I eventually started developing board games uh, as a hobby, uh, writing down the rules for them, creating prototypes, and um, the, the ideas uh, that I worked on sometimes, I'd be working on an idea for for years and, you know, never really got past the prototype stage, you know, because it was just on the side. Uh, but then when I finally got to the idea of Goblin's Jewel Fairy's Rule, um, that game was so simple and so small, I, I had a really good prototype, like a really well, 
you know, design fun game in such a relatively short period of time, I was like, well, I could actually take this game all the way and actually, you know, make a real published game out of it. So that that's basically how Game Ogami started from from that hobby in that one game that turned into something like, wow, I really think I have something here. That's awesome. Yeah. Unfortunately, none of us have actually had an opportunity to play the Goblin's Drool Fairies Rule game. I, I did have it in my hand at uh, a game store that I frequent in Kansas. And I, oh, so you picked it up. I picked it up. And so, then you put it back down. But oh. I'm, I'm, be, I'm being oh. uh, honest with you here. So. Wow. <laughs> no, again, I, it looks really cute. Hey, it, what, what game store was that? It, it's a game store in, in near the Kansas City area. It's called Tabletop. All right. So if you listeners, if you're in the Kansas City area, <laughs> go, go to the K- Tabletop store and take Sean's copy. You <laughs> cannot go back and get it. The game is practically sold out. It is. So this could it be is a rare game. Go and grab it now. Unfortunately, I think <laughs> I know. It's a shame on me. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was probably about a year ago. Uh, it came out. What, what year did it come out in? Uh, 2013. Okay, so I think it was probably a year ago that I saw it in the store. Yeah, it, um, it sold out about nine months ago, so it's it's been a while since it's been yeah. available. Well, again, I think at the time when I picked it up, I didn't know a whole lot about it, but definitely something I will want to explore if it gets a second printing. And is that in the pipeline at this point? Yes, that is, actually. So I'm talking with Game Salute, who is basically the, the co-publisher uh, of Goblin's Jewel Fairy's Rule when it came out. So we're talking about a second printing and something else along the same lines that's uh, in store, hopefully for a little bit later this year. Fantastic. Well, again, I think it will definitely be something that I'll be able to uh, get my family to play with me. It looks like a really cute game. Awesome. So again, my apologies for not buying your game uh, early on, (laughs) but I'll redeem myself at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Really quick, uh, David, I have a question for you. So you talked about kind of wanting to develop games. One thing that I wanted to know is what made you think like, okay, I'm going to publish this game. You know, I'm not going to throw this out to somebody else. I'm going to I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to walk this thing through publication. What kind of what was the impetus of, of you deciding to do that? That's a great question. So uh, when I was uh, designing Goblin's Rule Fairies Rule and in other games that haven't been published yet, but have have their origins even earlier. Um, I did do some research into uh, the tabletop game industry, uh, but it's it was still at the time, you know, in the you know mid to late 2000s, you know, maybe 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, it still wasn't really clear like how you could go about pitching your game to a publisher, um, and it also wasn't really that clear about how you'd go out go around publishing yourself, right? Uh, you know, there was some information out there, but not nearly as much as there is today, right? Yeah. But uh, from doing some research on like BoardGameGeek and some other websites, you know, I started to learn what was involved with actually publishing game, and it, you know, there's a lot involved in it, but it did seem like something that I was actually capable of taking on. So I started researching that more and more. Basically, the idea of becoming an indie publisher and and, and publishing the own the, the games that I had developed myself, uh, and then. Around 2009, Kickstarter hit. You know, I was a really early, uh, you know, adopter of of Kickstarter before it became, you know, really huge in like say 2012, 2013, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, but but just seeing what people were doing, not even just in the board game space, just with inventions and, and other stuff on Kickstarter, uh, I really got hooked on that concept and the idea that an independent creator could create something beyond the normal scope of, of what he was capable of, 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 you know, in terms of resources and everything else. 
by putting a project out there for the crowd. Uh, so, so the fact that other people were doing that, that really, you know, gave me the idea of like, well, you know, there, there you go. There's my funding. There's how I can actually go ahead and, and take this project and make it my own rather than going through the, the route of trying to pitch it to its companies, which again, at the time, there wasn't that much information out for that. Nowadays, there's way more. Right? Yeah. There's, it's, it's way more public about how you can just, you know, submit games uh, to publishers. They get submissions all the day. They, you know, most publishers are very serious about reviewing games and getting back to people. Um, and there's, there's of course, things that go on like uh, Unpub and Unpub Mini and Protospiel and the publisher speed dating at certain, you know, game conventions like Gen Con and Gamma and stuff. So there's a lot of resources out there now for game designers to approach publishers and, and show them a game. Right. But at, at the time, I was like, well, I'm going to have to do it myself or it's not going to happen at all. That's really cool. I know that with your, your logo for Game Ogami, uh, this kind of became a question that we asked Emerson was kind of the, the origin behind the name. And I noticed that your, your logo is actually kind of a origami game controller. So kind of what's the origin behind that? Right. Well, basically, you, you touched on, on it right there. The fact that it's, you know, it's in, it looks like an origami game controller, like PlayStation controller, you know, that goes with the name Game Ogami, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, you know, the literal and visual translation. But the idea behind it is that I do come from a video game development background, mm -hmm. you know, so, but I also love tabletop games just as much as I love video games. So I wanted to create a company that would marry those, those two together. Basically, the, the whole idea behind Game Ogami from the beginning has been to, to develop physical games, card games, board games, and video games as well. So uh, in addition to, you know, Goblin's Jewel Fairies rule that's been out, Immortal that's going to come out, there's also video games planned from Game Ogami. You know, it, part of that is going to be digital translations of uh, the, the board games, you know, basically bringing Immortal and Goblin's Jewel Fairies rule and other games to, you know, uh, to iOS, to PC, and other platforms, right? So every game that I've worked on, the idea has been like, okay, design the game so that it could port well to uh, a video game format. Uh, and beyond that, there's other ideas too for games that are solely video games uh, somewhere down the line. Fantastic, yeah. Actually, in the first part of our podcast, we were actually talking about some of our favorite digital implementations of board games. So that's great that oh, you're nice. going in that direction as well. Uh, that is awesome. Yeah, we're not there yet, but um, but we're getting there. Right? Yeah. So, you know, Immortal is our current project, but uh, coming down the line, uh, hopefully you'll be seeing some uh, digital projects from Gamagami very soon. Fantastic. What were some of the video games you've worked on in the past? Uh, I've worked on a lot of uh, RTS games and MMOs. Okay, great. Uh, so, so the first video game that I ever worked on was Asheron's Call. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the early 3D MMOs uh, from the late 90s. Uh, so it came out around the time, it was a little bit after uh, Ultima Online, uh, but came out around the same time as, as EverQuest and a little bit before, uh, you know, Dark Age of Camelot. So it was one of that those first generation of uh, 3D uh, MMO games. So that, that, was, that was my introduction into the game industry. Uh, since then, I've worked on other games like uh, Empires, uh, Rise and Fall, uh, Mythian, uh, End of Nations, uh, and a couple others. Um, uh, recently, I did some artwork for a, a friend of mine's game. He has his own independent game studio where he makes iPhone games. So he has a, uh, uh, a strategy game called Dark Breakers right now that's out on iOS. So I did some work for that one as well recently. Very cool. Very cool. 
Hmm. Checking phone right now. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> that was Dark Breakers. Well, David, uh, yeah. and the twenty other games I listed, but yeah, Dark Breakers is is the newer one. Okay, cool. David, let's shift over and talk a little bit about what you've got on Kickstarter right now, Immortal. What can you sure. tell us about that? Yeah, so uh, Mortal is a strategy board game of warring mythologies. So it co- combines a, a battle card and air control type gameplay uh, with a theme of different uh, gods and goddesses and heroes and monsters from different world mythologies all battling out against each other for supremacy uh, against these uh, for, for control of these mythological realms, basically the the, the borders between you know the, these different ancient religions and, and different you know uh, mythologies and, and, and legends have, have kind of crumbled, right? So you have Asgard colliding into you know Olympus. Uh, you have the the Greek gods facing off against Japanese gods and demons, uh, going up against Native American legends uh, and, and uh, the Norse characters like Thor and Odin and Loki. So it's kind of like this this sort of smash up free for all of all these different mythologies all competing against each other. And each player takes control of one of those mythologies and tries to take control of these modular battlefields by basically designing the, the playing field where these different worlds are colliding and then trying to take over them by capturing their opponent's forces and using their opponent's strengths against them once they've done that. It, lo- it looks really neat. It really does. Thank you. One of the things that, again, kind of tying in with this whole digital implementation of, of, of games, I, part of it reminded me a little bit of a card game that appeared in Final Fantasy VIII, which was Triple Triad, which had yes. that the, the, each card had four values on each side, and that kind of looks like it has a similar mechanic within Immortal as well. Yes, Triple Triad and other similar games. Uh, there's a whole genre of games that actually come from that, but I believe that Triple Triad was the earliest one as that mini game from Final Fantasy VIII. Uh, they also had, I think, Tetra Master was a slightly similar mini game from mm-hmm. Final Fantasy IX. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a game called Duotacad, which was similar, and several games that have come out since then. So that basic capture mechanic of numbers on four sides of a card, you know, played on uh, on a playing field, usually a grid, and, and used to try to capture each other, kind of like like tic-tac-toe or Othello, but with every piece has different strengths, um, you know, in order to change, like, the X's and O's, uh, you know, and, and change, basically if your X, right, triple triad is basically the idea that it's tic-tac-toe with numbers, right? Yeah. Your X, you're trying to turn your opponent's O's into your X's. So that very basic gameplay using those, those numbers to... Uh, capture other car- cards and control a grid. That was the original inspiration for the capture mechanic in Immortal. Uh, other games also contributed to the idea of you know, Magic the Gathering for its special abilities, uh, Summoner Wars for the idea of asymmetrical factions with a really strong uh, theme. Uh, uh, Dominion was an or, was originally also uh, one of the inspirations because I, I, I'm a huge fan of Dominion and I like the idea of people being build up their deck and strategy as time goes along. Uh, that idea was eventually dropped in favor of the pre-designed asymmetrical factions because that's what playtesters really enjoyed the most and, and felt that the game was strongest. So a lot of other games uh, have also have their own little effect on, on Immortal. Yeah, I, I really like that you have the four different pantheons, the different mythological gods and things like that from within the base game. And this is going to be yeah. the, the first master set, is that right? You're, are you planning to do more? 
Yeah, so more are eventually planned, but right now the focus is on Master Set 1 with those first four factions of the Greek, Norse, Native American, and Japanese pantheons. Uh, but we've also already uh, announced the stretch goal. So if the campaign does well enough and we're able to overfund, uh, we'll be able to add both the Egyptian and the Celtic pantheons uh, into the, the base master set for no, no additional cost to, to the backers anyway, right? So, uh, so the game will, will, will get basically 50% bigger in terms of content, in terms of the different factions you can play. Be able to, you know, bring in those Egyptian and Celtic gods and, and monsters into the battles. Uh, so, if we're fortunate to do that, Master Set One will become even bigger as one big standalone box with six pantheons. That's, That's really cool. Yeah, I'm getting more and more excited about this now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good. Yeah, I know it's not the same, but uh, as you know, I was kind of looking into the Kickstarter and whatnot, it definitely reminded me a little bit of a book by Neil Gaiman, American Gods, where the different gods from these different religions are kind of fighting each other. I know it's completely different, but it definitely drew that to mind to a certain extent. Yeah, someone else actually uh, mentioned that as well. Uh, A little while back, uh, I've been posting about this game on BoardGameGeek for a couple of years, actually. I've been sort of very transparent about the game design process with it, you know, showing off the early ideas and and artwork uh, quite, you know, since quite a while, I think since 2012. And back then, there's someone who had pointed me in that direction of the American Gods uh, book series, you know, saying, hey, you know, this is something you should check out because uh, because it has that, that slightly related, you know, sure. to it. Yes, Def- definitely slightly, but it did not did definitely trigger a connection in my mind, at least. Hey, David, really quick, with yeah. the, the game design process of Immortal, I always like to hear a little bit about, like, how things came to be. Was there something that was really interesting? You kind of actually mentioned that piqued my interest was, so you originally had a Dominion-like mechanic in there, a mechanism? Yes. In there. So tell me tell me a little bit about that. What What's kind of fallen off as you guys have uh, refined the game? Um, what were, What was, like, the hardest thing to get rid of? Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, as with uh, any any game, um, when you come up with the original idea, uh, you know, even even more than just the concept, like when you you start creating the rules before you've actually like really playtested the game, every idea you have seems awesome, right? Like in your head, <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and then when the rubber meets the road, and you start playing with the playtest, you're just like, oh, all this is crap, right? <laughs> like like so, there were a lot of ideas that went. Initially into Immortal that that got dropped, uh, you know, at one point or another. Uh, fortunately, the game was always fun because it came from a fun inspiration, a fun foundation. The game was always fun and always has been from from the very beginning. Even when things were broken, even when they were very un, un, unbalanced, the game always like showed its promise. It's always like, okay, so all we gotta do is fix these things. The game is is still definitely worth pursuing. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of those things that got dropped was the idea of the the deck building or, or deck drafting. Right. It's basically uh, the idea behind originally was that players could make their dream team of, of mythological characters. Right. They wanted mm-hmm. Medusa and Hercules and the Wendigo and Thor all fighting on the same on the same team. They could do that by drafting them during the game. Right. Building up their forces every turn, um, mm-hmm. which was an idea that was appealing to players, but in practice, it slowed down the game a lot. 
yeah. led to a lot of analysis paralysis because like there's so much strategy in every character you know in addition to the different strengths they have on on the four different sides of the cards they also have special abilities uh different power levels uh so that uh, evaluating all that and trying to decide who you're going to pick on your team and then where you're going to play it that made the game way longer than it really needed to be. Uh, on top of that, it was also very intimidating for new players who weren't familiar with which cards, you know, did what. Uh, so that led to even more paralysis of like, well, I don't know which one should pick because I don't know what they do. I don't want to, you know, pick wrong was, was the feeling of a lot of players. Uh, and a lot of them prefer just to be handed a group of cards and be like, here, play with these cards. I promise you the, this group of cards is fun and balanced here you go. And that's where the idea of of making it a faction-based game, you know, like RTS games, you know, like StarCraft and stuff like that, where you have pre-designed, well-balanced, very thematic, you know, uh, factions that can go up against each other. Same thing, you know, like Summoner Wars also has a similar concept. The idea of giving a player a deck of cards, telling them, here you go, have fun with this. That's what most of the playtesters preferred. And that's why the whole, you know, deck drafting and building element was, was abandoned. That sounds awesome, David. Um, David, I'm a huge fan of, of these uh, asymmetrical type games, like you mentioned, Summoner Wars and things like that. My question for you is, how were you able to capture the feel of a particular pantheon? Like, Can you kind of give us, maybe pick one of them and just kind of give us a little bit of their mechanics, how they differ from the others that kind of reflects that pantheon? Sure. Uh, so originally, the, uh, the, the game idea was fairly amorphous in terms of the special abilities, right? I just thought of, uh, you know, a bunch of cool special abilities and got, you know, suggestions from other friends, you know, let's put these kind of different special abilities in the game without really assigning them to any specific pantheon, right, just to test them out. And as as we play tested the game, you know, it became more and more evident that there were certain themes among the abilities. You know, some abilities were zone control abilities that gave you an advantage for covering a certain area. You know, other abilities were denial type abilities, right? Which would steal abilities from other cards or, or prevent certain things from happening. Um, so there was, you know, different themes among groups of abilities. So that's when I just started grouping those abilities together within the different pantheons. Uh, as an example, the Norse pantheon have a, a very strong sort of porcupine feel to them. They're, they're, they basically uh, sit out in the middle. They tend to be very strong. They have on average higher uh, strength values on their four sides than most of the other cards. Mm -hmm. So they kind of can, they can, you know, attack really well, but they can also defend really well. And they can even risk themselves by kind of sitting out in the middle of the battlefield and being like, come get me because they have a lot of these sort of reve revenge and trap type abilities, which is again, like the whole porcupine idea. Like you can go ahead and attack them, but you're going to be punished for it. Interesting. So any abilities that kind of fit, fit within that realm of like being, sort of brave, being strong, gung-ho, being, you know, like just kind of waving your weapons up in the air and, you know, come get me kind of fashion. Those abilities were then assigned to the Norse pantheon. And I noticed that with the, uh, the Japanese pantheon, that some of them have the ability to kind of be played in the void space, places off the board. Yes. So that was kind of an interesting little thematic thing, kind of like the... the I don't know. It's kind of make me think of like the sneaky ninja to a certain extent. It kind of be able to exactly, sneak in. right? Yeah. That's that's basically you know stealth. The idea of you know the, even though there aren't any specifically actually ninjas right, in the game right. since it's based on you know mythology and stuff, 
but you know they have like demons and ghosts and other kind of stuff that could also fit along that idea of like creeping out from the shadows or from the voids. So that it's definitely meant meant to be a nod to you know ninjas because ninjas are awesome. <laughs> Clint uh, definitely agrees with you on that one. <laughs> Solidarity, nice. ninjas. Man oh, after my own heart. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, we had a nice debate a couple weeks ago about pirates versus uh, ninjas. So pirates. Oh, speaking of which. <laughs> Oh, no, actually, I can't announce anything yet. Oh, oh There's a teaser for you. Okay, you well, we look forward to hearing something about that. All right. <laughs> so, in terms of, I know you said that you do some of the artwork for for the games that you've been working on. What's kind of been your process for developing the art aesthetic for your games? Uh, so, uh, I, I'm an artist, right? I've been an artist my whole life. So, in, doing, in addition to doing a lot of, you know, my own artwork... Uh, I've, I've been a big art fan also, right? I spend a lot of time on, on the internet and in bookstores and places looking at other people's artwork, right? There are a lot of like really great artists out there that I follow, whether on DeviantArt or, or Tumblr or other places. And I've had the, the real honor of getting to work with some really talented artists at different companies that I've worked at, right? So artists that I think personally, you know, blow my own skills away. Um, so I have these connections that I've set up through my career. I have this familiarity, uh, you know, with very talented and, and popular uh, artists on the internet. Uh, so I've I've tried to leverage that with Game Ogami, right? Picking the the right artist for each project to give the game the exact kind of feel I want, which I think is is the number one goal of, of an art director is to to basically not necessarily do all the art, but make sure you pick the right people to capture the right feel to get a message across. And, and so with both Goblin's Jewel, Fairy's Rule, and, and Immortal, the whole idea has been to, you know, give those games a very specific, me- you know, message. I, I think you mentioned earlier how those the two games are, you know, very different, and they are in terms of gameplay and theme and visuals. They're so far apart, but there's still, like, a theme running within those games that are similar in that both games are about characters, about, you know, uh, uh, game, Goblin's Jewel Fairy's Rule had a, a bunch of original characters, while uh, Immortal focuses on you know, well-known characters from, from world mythology, but we're still trying to put our original spin on them. So making the characters a main focus of the game and, 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 and giving each game you know, very different styles, but still a very specific and, and unique art style to each game, I think is part of Game Agami's, you know signature, and, and that was the whole goal all along. Is to make each game stand out as something that's instantly recognizable, in addition to just being high quality. Fantastic, that's great. So, David, a question is: you you said that you had multiple artists that have uh, that have contributed. Um, how did you maintain yes. cohesion? Um, I've backed a Kickstarter before that that had a lot of different artists, and I looked at it, and the 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 art style was not cohesive. You could tell that they were different artists. This, these artists or these uh, images, like they blend really well together. Like they feel like they fit. Um, how did you go about doing that? Like, was that like your expertise in designing games um, and doing artwork or how'd you do that? Yeah. So, so the way to accomplish that is through very, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily rigid, but very specific art direction, making mm-hmm. sure you have a, 
you know, a very solid idea of what you want the game to look like and then communicating that to your artists, right? Not just, you know, in the reference material, but also in the descriptions, giving the requirements for this is the style of this game. You know, for, for Immortal, for example, you know, the style is, is, is clearly the, uh, you know, semi-realistic look to the characters, but also a, ve a very rough, you know, sort of speed-painted, you know, impressionist look at, mm -hmm. at the same time, right? Uh, so, the, and that was achieved through, you know, realistic colors, uh, realistic lighting schemes, taking very unreal characters and, and fantasy concepts, but but giving them sort of this, you know, natural impressionistic look, and and that was very very deliberate, and that was communicated to to each artist who worked on this project. Like these are the guidelines, you know, this, this is, you know, even though each artist has their own you know, individual style, you can see a little bit of that. A little bit of that, you know, showing up in in the artwork. Mm -hmm. At least I think you can. But you but can. overall, mm -hmm. the the idea was for them to look like they really existed in the same world and like they could have been done by the same artists, even though it really is six artists total working on this project. Yeah, I mean, it, the the number one thing that ca catches my eye is the artwork is just is captivating. Yeah, it's, it's, really it's gorgeous. Good. It really is. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to hear that, and I'll <laughs> let the other artists know uh, uh, that you guys said that. Uh, out of curiosity, is there any particular illustration or piece of artwork that you've seen in the game so far that um, that's really caught your eye? Um, honestly, I I really like. I I don't know who the artist is. I think it's for the Native Americans. Like I've looked at like cards like Silver Fox and and like Brother Bear is you know my family is uh, we love uh, Native American culture and uh, so I was looking at that and I'm like oh yeah I know actually that and how that's actually kind of a, a hodgepodge of like different different Native American you know you have right. Inuit uh, things you have certain styles of uh, I can see here that they're like there are like Navajo uh, right. Navajo legends I, I, I love that and I love how kind of how you kind of give a like you have like lore behind them to kind of give you that that feeling. Yeah, the the Native American pantheon in particular is is a little different than the others because it actually covers the the legends and beliefs of uh, a broad scope of people, right? So yeah. the, basically, different Native American peoples of North America, uh, their stories make up uh, this um, this faction in the game. You know, so we have you know Cherokee. Uh, 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 characters like uh, the Octana, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is actually a character that's represented by a lot of different peoples, but the Octana was the Cherokee name for it. You know, the Wendigo will be in the game, and that's, you know, a, a Canadian and, and very Northern American um, uh, mythological, you know, monster. There are also Inuit characters like, like Tarkek and, and others, who's that Inuit moon spirit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Silver Fox, which comes from, I believe, Northern California. Peoples from there uh, have a belief of both the silver fox and the coyote creating the world together. Uh, coyote, who's basically super popular, it comes from many different um, uh, Native American tribe legends, uh, you know, throughout North America. So a lot of these characters either appear from from multiple tribes or are just so famous and so compelling from a very specific people that the idea was to bring them in the game. So the North American pantheon is almost like an alliance of all these characters from these disparate peoples. Yeah. And I think that's what really is cool is how you were able to, to kind of mesh them into a cohesive group, even them, you know, taking from a bunch of different ones. I, I, I think that that will probably be my favorite faction probably. <laughs> Sweet. They're fun to play too. 
Right Even better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, getting back to your question about the the art direction, uh-huh. um, with Goblin's Little Fairy's Rule, it was way simpler uh, for two reasons. One, there was only one illustrator on that project. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an artist. His name's Mike Mayhack. He's a very popular uh, webcomic. And he actually, right now, he has a graphic novel series being published by Scholastic called Cleopatra in Space. So he's a really talented artist who has a very specific style. Of, of, you know, it's, it's, it's a very uh, uh, kid-friendly style. You know, it's, it's fun, family-friendly, but it's also really unique, really stands out with these beautiful both comic-type illustrations and watercolor-type illustrations. So I had been a fan of his for a while, and, and when I was thinking up Goblin Shul Fairy's Rule, I was like, man, of all the people I could get to make this game, like, he'd be the one. Right to do the artwork for it, and I was really fortunate that I was able to to grab him for this project. Uh, I could have done the artwork for myself, but I know it wouldn't have turned out as good or as 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 really stand out as it would have if Mike, you know, uh, if he hadn't been involved in in the game, it wouldn't have turned out really the way I dreamed it. And, and I'm really fortunate that I got him onto this project. So art directing that was super simple for two reasons. One. There was only one person to direct, right? Like I did some of the graphic design myself and stuff, but he did most of the illustrations. So I didn't have the same kind of work involved with, you know, as with Immortal, where trying to wrangle five other artists and get them to fit, you know, within the same style. So mm-hmm. one artist is easy to direct, but also there wasn't much direction that was needed because his art style naturally was perfect for that game, for what it needed. And it's been one of the biggest selling points of it is that like everyone who looks at the game is like, Wow, this is you know these illustrations are adorable. They're funny. The goblins are cute and gross at the same time. You know all, all that stuff. You know it was actually fairly easy to pull off because I picked the right artist for the project. That's great. I think uh, being able to have the insight to know who the right person for the job is great. I'm glad you have the expertise to kind of uh, put that all together. So yeah, I think like you had mentioned earlier about backing a, a previous Kickstarter project that had a lot of artwork that looked very different. From each other right mm-hmm yeah um, i remember that that same kind of thing from the early days of magic the gathering That's yeah true. yes remember, completely remember when that game came out you know in the, the mid early to mid 90s the the artwork was very different from one card to the next mm-hmm. which was something i really liked um you know it was cool to see you know to have certain artists as a favorite you know some of my favorite artists be like oh you know i, I can tell this guy's style on certain cards it's like you know it was great and then some others like oh they gave this they gave this art to this guy again, you know, if he had a style I didn't like, you know. So it was the, the, the art style was very wild and, you know, very different from one card to the next. But they've changed that a lot, I think. If you look at Magic the Gathering cards, you know, nowadays, it's still a lot of different artists working on that game because they can afford to pay a lot of different artists a lot of money to create, you know, create artwork for Magic the Gathering because they're rolling in dough. But their <laughs> art direction is so much tighter nowadays where it really does look like a one cohesive style no matter who is painting for that game. Yeah, I, I think that that's really cool. I mean, seriously, what I'm taking away, I really like this idea of like art direction and like the importance of it. And I can definitely, like I said, I, I, I really I really can appreciate it, especially in a game like this. It almost feels like there was one artist, but I think, like you said, you've kind of 
it's blended together so de- so well. I'm, yeah. I'm really impressed. And, and, and thank you. In all sincerity, I am actually really really excited for this cool. game at this point. Because um, again, I I really hadn't known a whole lot about it, but the more I learn about it, the more I see it, making the connections to the you know the basic mechanic of from Triple Triad, which I played a ridiculous amount of times in Final <laughs> Fantasy VIII. I think we all did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Once you start playing that game, you start playing a ridiculous amount of it. Yeah, yeah. So, but again, that you're taking it into, there's a lot more strategic depth. The, the mechanisms are very straightforward. It's very clear that, well, if this number is bigger than that number, then you beat them and you take take control of them. But I, I'm really excited that you're taking it into a little bit more in-depth and you get the mo- modular board, which lets you to kind of change the landscape in which those battles are taking place. So, very excited about it. I think you definitely have have one over a backer from me so oh awesome double back double backer <laughs> well, we might we might help them send together well oh. we need every backer we can get absolutely yeah, and again at, at starter project everybody counts you know not just the money you're getting but just the fact that you know the social proof of you know you have you're putting your confidence behind the game by deciding to back it and the fact that you're telling other people about it, like every backer is so important for so many different reasons beyond just the amount of money that they're pledging to the project. Absolutely. So, but I think at this point, uh, what we're going to do is go ahead and shift over to our closing segment, which is the punch list. So in this segment, what we do is one of us presents the group with some general criteria of a board game. And then we have to think about what game we deem to be punch worthy that meets that criteria. So today... Jonathan's going to present our punch list. Okay, I'm going to put a little twist on this today, okay? We're not going to do our usual, you know, best space game or something like that. So it's actually going to be a two-part question. Oh, that's cheating, but okay. Uh, All right. It's okay. It's a double punch. All right. Okay? <laughs> the first, okay, it's, it's one question, but the question is, what board game designer would you like to sit down and play a game with, and what game would you play with them? And it doesn't necessarily have to be one they've designed. Okay, so what board game designer would you like to sit down and play a game with? And then what game would you play with them? So I'll go ahead and start us off. Um, oh, okay. I'll give you guys a chance to think for a second. But I picked Colby Dauk from uh, Plat Hat Games, designer of Summer Wars. Sorry, mm-hmm. I just stole Sean. I can already tell. I already stole his. No, we just tend to be a little <laughs> bit uh, Plat Hat-centric on our podcast. And I do apologize for that. But... <laughs> And uh, I was trying to think of a game to play with Colby, and you know, first I thought of Resistance, but he hates Resistance. If you if you've ever listened to any of their podcasts, <laughs> so I threw that out. I think I would actually like to uh, play Dead of Winter with Colby. Um, I think it would be fun to to maybe be the betrayer, or uh, you know, see if I can uh, sneak one by him, or if he happened to be the traitor. I think he would play it up pretty good, and and it would be an entertaining time. Nice. Oh, you're pointing at me. Thanks. Fantastic. Of course. All right. <laughs> I'm actually a really big Power Grid fan, so that's one of that was one of the earlier games that I actually picked up. That was on the getting towards more the heavier side in terms of the euros and whatnot. And I've always been attracted to to green. That's usually my player color. And the designer Friedman Fries also obviously dyes his hair green. So I think I would actually love to play. Power Grid with Friedman Fries. I think that'd be a lot of fun. I know he completely schooled me in the game, but I think it would be a kind of kind of a fun experience. Have you guys played many of Fries's games? Uh, Power Grid. Power Grid. I played First Sparks. Yes. Yes. I played. I played First Sparks as well. I haven't played the original Power Grid. How did you like First Sparks? I didn't. You, okay. <laughs> so for ha- for having never played Power Grid, 
uh, and and knowing what a popular game it is, and, and so many of my friends really like that game. I just haven't had the opportunity to play it yet. And then someone you know broke out you know first Sparks. Um, I, I I was I guess maybe expecting a lot of it. I was like, oh, this should be fun, and I had a terrible time mm-hmm. with with that game. Maybe it's just from from the first play, uh, or maybe it's just not you know my my kind of game. But I I was struggling with it. Yeah, I don't. I definitely feel like first Sparks is a weaker implementation of the power grid system i i don't know some people uh complain about power grid being too mathy and i completely agree towards the end when people are feeling like they need to bust out a calculator to in the end game that's that's a problem they're not thinking about it they're doing it (laughs) yeah true. but i i don't know i like the idea of the the auction and i could completely see myself you know, getting into a bidding war with uh, Friedman Freeze over a power plant or something like that. But again, if you haven't played Power Grid, I think it's uh, it's not a game for everybody. But I do like a lot of that, the tough decisions and making the, the connections, and then also buying your resources and managing that, trying to get the best deals, and then at the same time making your opponents pay more for the resources they know you know they need to have as well. So I'd go right. with the Power Grid. I feel like I can predict Clint's, but oh, you think you can? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, who would it be? Ignazi? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I just knew it. I just, I just feel like... cheating no, off my iPad. No, I had it. I had it. I had it in my mind, and then I did look down and see that yes. you know, you'd pulled up your favorite. But Yes, I I would I would probably choose Ignacy Trevichek. But just um, because you're picking the game doesn't mean you have to... You could play any game with him. Well, the, I think that's actually the thing, is that what I love about board games is that... And I love, like I said, having David on here... And, and talking about this is is hearing the story behind the games and Ignacy and I wouldn't and I'm not just doing it so that I can plug in Robinson Crusoe I, <laughs> I, I I'm sure yeah I mean seriously I'm not doing it just to plug in that one but one of the things I like about Ignacy is that he he is very introspective and he is very thoughtful on his process mm-hmm. and he actually I've I've read. He did a, you know, what I did to to make to make uh, Robinson Crusoe, and I remember he talked about showing it to Vladik Vadel, and saying, you know, well, what do you think? And Vlada pretty much just said, well, well, you need to fix this, this, and this. And Ignacio was like, oh shoot, he was so right, <laughs> you know, he was so right, and uh, and I I love people thinking through their process you know kind of almost that meta development and i think it'd just be really interesting just to sit here and like he flips a card and he smiles a little bit and he's like yeah we snuck this in at the last second and you know i put this gold here just so i could just you know laugh at people when they drew the gold card or whatever Gold. i would want to hear the story behind the game and that would just that would be robinson crusoe I mean, he's got a bunch of other great games and very thematic, very thoughtful. I'd love to hear him just kind of, I'd love to play a game and him just kind of tell me how things came to be. Yeah. No, that's a good that's a good choice, even though, yeah. Jonathan's our go-to plaid hat guy. You're our go-to <laughs> Ignacy guy. <laughs> All right, David, what, uh, now that you've had some time to think, what would be right. your choice? Yeah, thanks for saving me for last so I wasn't stuttering and stumbling and stuff. <laughs> Don't worry, we got the stuttering stumbling taken out of the way. So <laughs> Nice. So uh, I'm going to pick uh, Tom Vassell. So he's not, I know he's not a very prolific game designer, but he has at least designed, you know, famously designed uh, Nothing Personal. So I think he counts. And Vicious Fishes. 
<laughs> oh, he did Vicious Fishes also. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Nice. The little so, known. All right, so he's got at least two games in his belt, so I think he counts for this. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the reason um, why I'd like to pick Tom Vassell is because the game I'd want to play with him is actually uh, Immortal. And uh, the reason for that is that being very familiar with the kind of games that he likes, you know, as as a very well-known game reviewer and, and game media guy, he talks a lot about what kind of games really get him going. I know he loves Amerithrash type games, games with like, you know, really strong fantasy themes that are, that are very competitive, you know, asymmetrical factions, all that kind of stuff that, that he's very, you know, vocal on, on the things that he really loves in a game. All that stuff is, is in Immortal, and it's made with those kind of people in mind, right? Those, those really competitive players who really like to get into a theme and, and really smash their opponents. So I think he'd be a really fun person to finally get to a play Immortal with when, whenever it eventually comes out, right? You know, at a game convention or something like that. Uh, I think that'd be really fun, so he'd be my first pick. It's awesome. That's, That's great. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, I think that's going to bring the conclusion of podcast number 10. So we'd like to thank our guest, David, for joining us. Thank you. Uh, if, if you don't mind, uh, just because we've talked so much about artwork, yeah. Um, I would just like to give a shout out to the artists that I've been working with. Oh, please. Uh, of course. Through Game Megami. So first is Mike Mayhack from Goblin's Jewel Fairies Rule. Uh, look him up. He's, he's awesome. And some other artists that you can look up there their work on the internet are uh, these artists from Immortal are Ja Taptara, uh, that's Ja with an X, Ja mm-hmm. Taptara, uh, Monica Paolos, Malek Jakubiak, Grant Grifford, and Kiane. So shout out to those guys. They're all awesome. Fantastic. And, and I, th- I believe on, on Board Game Geek, they've also got, hopefully they have all the artists listed under that game entry for Immortal yes. as well. So. Yes. Fantastic. But again, I, you know, you didn't kind of say, hey, say this on the podcast, but no, really heartfelt. I, I think I'm really excited about the Immortal game, and I think you've definitely won over a backer from Clinton and myself. So I'm really excited awesome. to see more from, from Game Ogami. Thank you. And you guys have won over a fan for your podcast. Well, <laughs> fantastic. Really, really great going here. I mean, you sound like you're, you know, for only, you know, episode number 10, which now you're in the double digits, which is awesome, and it's a nice round number. That's not that many episodes, but you guys already sound like you're old pros at this. Well, thank you. I really do appreciate it. So, Just six more episodes and we can drive. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways. Actually, uh, well, four more. I think you can drive like a tractor in Nebraska or something like that. There's, oh, wow. Tractor licenses are younger than driver's license, so there's that. Look out. <laughs> Blazing down the highway. <laughs> you think 16's bad. Wait till we hit episode 21. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. As always, you can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or visit us at punchdemplayed.com. And just remember, if you're gonna punch them, make sure you play them. 